0: Welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your wellbeing, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my 5 Minute Food Facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for wellbeing. Before I introduce today's guests, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube hit the red subscribe button, or on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I will also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure, or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today, I am here with Dr. Tom Nemi. Tom is a clinical psychologist, developer and founder of the Healthy Minds program, speaker, trainer, and now author. I came across Tom at my children's school where he delivered a talk to parents about his Healthy Minds program, and I was very impressed. Healthy Minds Education and Training, where Tom is a director, is the leading provider of preventative mental health services to schools and companies in Australasia. The program was developed at Flinders University but has evolved into a psychological skills training program that has reached and helped thousands of people. Tom has had an interesting path to becoming a psychologist and I'll let him tell us about that. Recently, Tom has published a book called Apples for the Mind, which aims to help people overcome challenges and discover the foundation of their quality of life, which is well-being. The book outlines steps to take to create emotional balance, peak performance, and lifelong
1: well-being.
0: Today, I am here with Dr. Tom Nemi. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me.
0: Tom, can you tell us about your decision to become a clinical
1: psychologist? Sure. Um, It was an interesting decision that came about as a result of a failure. Um, I failed at my choice of profession uh, that I decided on in adolescence, which was to be a race car driver.
0: Sounds fun. And uh,
1: it was fun, but um, it didn't quite work out as I planned. And that's not all bad. That experience actually helped me a lot later. Um, But then I went to university as a plan B and became Mm -hmm. a psychologist.
0: And so what did training to become a psychologist involve?
1: It's usually a minimum of six years mm-hmm. so to be a registered psychologist in Australia you generally would do a four-year bachelor plus honours degree in psychology and then uh, at least a two-year master's degree where you do your effectively a clinical training right so I, I, I did all of that and I started working as a clinician and did work in various roles but ultimately went back to university to do another four years in fact um, as a research project which became my phd
0: oh okay so was that was the foundation then was it of your healthy minds program correct okay okay so i would really like, like to talk about the healthy minds program but before we delve into that i just wanted to have a general chat about mental well-being so first of all how would you describe well-being in a general
1: sense I think wellbeing is something that's multifaceted. Mm, I agree. We use the term as almost a synonym of the phrase mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny when you think about the phrase mental health it's actually a very positively worded phrase mental health. Yes But it's funny when we hear the phrase mental health, what we usually think of is mental ill health. That's right. There's a whole lot of assumptions that, that come with that. so I prefer the term well-being because I think it's about more than just being not unwell.
0: Yes and I think many people when they as you said, when they hear the term mental health, What comes to their mind are are things like depression and anxiety. So if we're talking about mental health in terms of well-being,
1: what does it look like to be mentally well? Well, It's an excellent question because I think, again, there are misconceptions Mm. about this, and many people conflate well-being with happiness and feeling happy. Mm. Now, feeling happy is certainly a desirable and an enjoyable thing, but it's not normal to feel happy 24-7. And if we take our mood as the best marker of well-being or mental health, I think it's a red herring. Mm. Because if we're aiming for feeling good all the time, it's not realistic. And we're going to judge ourselves harshly for experiencing really natural, normal emotions that are actually part and parcel of having a, a meaningful, responsible mm-hmm. and kind of goal-directed life. So when I unpack well-being and say to someone, well, what could you do to build your well-being? Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to six key factors. Mm-hmm. So we call this the well-being wheel. Right.
0: Yes. You have <laughs> explained that in your book. Yes.
1: And so the six factors are, if you want me to just give a really quick yes, overview. it's Good idea. Uh, first one is our primary relationships. And in no particular order, actually, but that's just how I go around the the wheel clockwise, Uh, primary relationships. So the quality of the relationships in your life will massively impact your well-being. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a segment that's around biological needs, getting enough sleep, drinking water, balanced diet. We can't really completely separate our physical health from our mental health.
0: No, and I think that's becoming more and more understood.
1: Yeah, because if we don't look after those things, it becomes a stressor that will impact our mental mm. health. So we include that as kind of factor number two. We give a whole segment of the well-being wheel to exercise, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound very psychological, but it, it, it's actually very important for our mental health because we know that if someone engages in vigorous exercise, it's likely to boost their mood, it's a real stress reliever, Yeah, it's got all these psychological benefits. Yeah, I love it.
0: (laughs) Heartily endorse that.
1: Yeah, and it's funny for for many years and and even to date, if I was to encounter someone who was um, maybe mildly depressed or in the early phases of a depressive episode, and if I noticed that they were becoming inactive, Mm -hmm. which is really common in depression, one of the first things I'd say to them is, could you exercise more? Now that's not the whole answer for depression, but in the short term it's about as effective as anything else they could do. Um, So exercise is is on the well-being wheel. Then we come to psychological skills. Mm -hmm. This is the least well-understood segment. And really that's our bread and butter. When we talk about the Healthy Minds program that we do in schools and in workplaces, um, when we talk about the book Apples for the Mind, it's really all drilling down into those psychological Mm -hmm. skills that people wouldn't get to learn usually unless they were spending time one-on-one with a psychologist or a coach. And so uh, a big part of our work is getting those skills and that knowledge out of the therapy room mm-hmm. and into people's hands through our program or through the book. Um, so that's, that's a crucial one. Yeah. Then we come to what I call the balance segment, which is this idea that we need to have fun mm-hmm. for fun's sake. We need to have interests outside of our school or work. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have a social life. That's part of, uh, I think, our human needs. And then there's this last six segment, which is I, I call it the big picture segment. It's about meaning and purpose. Right. What kind of gives, you know, what gets us out of bed in the morning, yeah, what keeps us going. Yeah, what us. us. Yeah.
0: Mm. Oh, that sounds really interesting. The one thing I really enjoy about your Healthy Minds program is the way you've approached it, as you've touched on just briefly there, is it's very obvious that we need to look after things like our physical health, we eat well, we exercise. But when it comes to our mental health, as you said, unless you go and visit a psychologist, you don't necessarily know how to do it because it's not taught. So can you tell us in terms of the Healthy Minds program, what are some of the things you teach to children or businesses for people to empower themselves to look after their mental health and be well?
1: Yeah, there's there's really so much mm. to teach people and there's yeah. so much to know. I think a few of them would be just the basics of understanding our psychology. Um, it, it's funny, isn't it, that many people, I think, view psychology as being esoteric, mm. when in actual fact it's it's not really. Um, it's quite a scientific, yes. well-laid-out sort of a, a, a discipline. I was. It's funny, I was in between business meetings um, interstate a few months ago, and I was taking a, a ride share to my next meeting, and the driver... Invariably said, "Oh, mate, what do you do yeah. for a living?" And I said, "Well, I'm a psychologist." And this poor bloke nearly ran off the road because oh, no. he he sort of looked at me strangely and he said, "So you know what I'm thinking?" <laughs> and I said to him, "No, mate, I'm not a psychic. I'm a psychologist. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a helper to people and I, I talk to them about their mental health." So it just goes to show that there's there's a lot of assumptions and myths out there. But in terms of psychological skills, well, we want to teach people. Where do emotions come from? Right. Why do we have them and what's their purpose? Mm. How can we manage emotions well? So we we often teach that, you know, emotions that are a part of our most primal part of the brain, we have them because on some level they served a purpose. Mm -hmm. They actually helped us. And really it comes down to emotional urges. So I'm sure your listeners, Amanda, will know that when we feel strong emotions, often we feel an urge to react in a particular way. And so we call those reaction urges. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel um, fear-based emotions, if you feel really worried or anxious, often our urge, if we just go with the feeling, is to escape or avoid.
0: Right, yes.
1: If we feel down... There's an urge to kind of withdraw. Withdraw. Mm-hmm. To shut ourselves away. And if someone feels really angry, the urge is kind of to lash out, yes. isn't it?
0: Yes. And it's not always a helpful
1: thing to act on your urges, is it? No. And this is the great... kind of This is where kind of the skill part lies, yes. is that we acknowledge that, okay, we have these emotions because they helped us survive throughout mm. evolution. Once upon a time, in a much more dangerous world lashing out tended to help you protect yourself Mm. and your family or clan. Running away was helpful when we had more dangerous things in the environment. And if you felt down and you had no energy and you couldn't really think straight, it was safer to stay back in the cave. Mm. So in that historical perspective, these urges really helped us and, and conferred a survival advantage. But in the modern world... Think about that for a minute if we always went with our reaction urges. If every time you felt angry, you just lashed out. If every time you felt anxious or worried, you just avoided it. Or you always just shut yourself away when you started to feel down. I think in the modern world, for any length of time or or if we're impulsive about it, going with these reaction urges is unhelpful.
0: Yes, it seems to have changed from, as you say, being a survival instinct to actually now potentially being unhelpful. One of the most common mental conditions that uh, you talk about in your book is anxiety. So if we could um, talk about that for a little bit. So how does it manifest and what are some of the strategies to cope with
1: anxiety? Sure. Anxiety, I think, is best characterized as really two things. It's often a thinking style that overestimates risk. Right. It overestimates the chances of something going wrong or how bad it would be if something went wrong. We sometimes call this catastrophizing, Mm -hmm. going to the worst-case scenario. Um, The other characteristic of anxiety is avoidance. And um, it's quite easy to understand that if someone was perceiving threat and risks all around them in their day-to-day life that their instinct would be to avoid. Mm. Because, of course, we go back to that evolutionary perspective, running away from actual danger is helpful. Yes. But our brains aren't great at differentiating between actual threat and perceived threat. So your body could still generate a huge adrenal response with a racing heart, butterflies in your tummy, increased blood pressure, feeling hot and sweaty. And that might be in response to something that's not actually dangerous at all.
0: Public speaking is a Probably a common example. Public speaking. People are uh,
1: terrified. Yeah, a performance review at work, (laughs) um, a meeting with your tutor, an exam. (laughs) So think about these day-to-day scenarios. If we always went with that primal urge to just run away, that's not going to work out well. And so part of the solution for anxiety is to challenge our automatic thoughts, our automatic perceptions Mm -hmm. of risk, to think in ways that are balanced and realistic. And to be willing to do things sometimes that make us uncomfortable if they're safe and if it's you know it fits with our values to do it yes then maybe we should do it anyway even though we feel anxious
0: is that akin to sort of building up a tolerance for example so make yourself go and do some public speaking if you're terrified of it that kind of thing yeah
1: or? it's it's really two things it's partly building up a tolerance mm. to the discomfort and it's partly overcoming the discomfort through habituation right so habituation is getting used to something mm. and this underpins I think what most clinical psychologists would do to help someone with anxiety, and we call it exposure therapy, mm-hmm. literally doing the thing, getting the, the client to do the thing that makes them anxious, but to do it in a way that is graded, it's step-by-step, mm-hmm. step, right, and it's prolonged. So we would sit with that anxious feeling long enough that we start to feel comfortable again. And if we do that repeatedly, eventually something that we fear becomes normal and comfortable again.
0: So in terms of the Healthy Minds program in schools, I imagine that just talking about these issues is, and bringing them into the awareness of students is very helpful because otherwise, as you say, it might be something that only comes up in you know the psychologist's office. How do you communicate that to the children? Like, how
1: does it work? Mm. That's a good question. And I think partly it is about awareness. Mm. But we aim to go further than that. We want to build skills. Right. And for me, balanced, realistic, helpful thinking, I've sort of put that under the heading of helpful thinking, Mm. is a skill. It's something we can learn. It's something we can practice. And then we can apply in our life. So with the example of the Healthy Mind School Program, we have... Exercises in the classroom in a workbook that are literally practising this skill of helpful thinking. We give kids scenarios. We get them to identify any little what we call thinking errors Mm -hmm. or biases in someone's thinking. We get them to explore alternate information that when we're on automatic pilot we might not have considered. And then we get them to actually formulate um, a thought that is more balanced and more realistic and helpful.
0: Is that the... The magic question?
1: It's the helpful thinking process. Helpful thinking process. And the magic question is related but different. So the magic question is, um, as opposed to a thinking strategy, the magic question is more of a behavioural strategy.
0: I see, yes.
1: So if I feel one of those reaction urges... And I don't really have the forethought or the time to sit down and work through my no. thoughts. And in real life that's... Do your workbook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't always have the workbook, yeah. candy. So the magic question is a way that we can make a good decision in the midst of a strong reaction urge. And I think that... I call it the magic question because... I truly believe that if we were to not just remember the magic question, but remember to ask the magic Mm. question of ourselves. The
0: magic question is, Tom? The magic
1: question is, what is the helpful thing to do now?
0: Mm. So even I think having that thought process gives you a little bit of time to stop and not um, act instinctively just think about your response. So even the fact of asking the question must be helpful.
1: Exactly. Mm. And even if we didn't ask that specific question, just stopping and asking ourselves any question that causes us to stop and think, to generate options. Mm. Because when we stop and consider our options, by definition, we're not on automatic pilot. Automatic pilot is when we respond without thinking. It's when we respond by impulse. Mm. And so, Anything that's a stop-and-think strategy helps us to activate that self-control. I call it psychological muscle, actually, this ability to override the reaction urge. Right. And so if I can, if I feel that emotion rising up and I stop and I genuinely think, okay, what's the helpful thing to do now? I've got to consider my alternatives and then I can go with the best one. Yes. And really, this is the ultimate skill, making good decisions. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's great that our kids are being exposed to this way of thinking and learning because if they weren't, I mean, it's probably something that's almost harder to learn as an adult because you're so habituated to acting in certain ways.
1: I think so, you're right. It, yeah. it is a window of opportunity. Mm. We know that um, young people's brains are, are, are fluid and there's mm. there, there's so many connections being made in the brain. Um, the advantage that we have working with adults is that, Uh, There's less work to do to convince them of the importance of focusing on their well-being. When you're talking to a room full of 13 or 14-year-olds, they're they're often interested, but um, you can't take it for granted that um, they will see it as immediately relevant to them as a human. Yeah, they have that sort of bulletproof
0: you know, approach to life, don't they? Absolutely. And we've all been there. I remember
1: thinking that way too. Um, We've just got to kind of roll with it, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things you talk about in your book a bit is perfectionism. And I know in some ways you think, oh, isn't that great? You know, everything's perfect and you want to achieve um, things in a perfect way. But in actual fact, it can be quite... Unhelpful and it can hinder performance. So, can you tell us what perfectionism is and how it manifests, and and how to approach it in terms of treatment
1: options or Healthy Minds program? Definitely, perfectionism is. I, I call it a hidden pathology mm. because perfectionism, which is really a relentless striving to meet higher standards, mm. um, it masquerades as diligence, right, and yet. High levels of perfectionism we actually call clinical perfectionism because it's associated with psychological disorders. It's associated with poor well-being generally. Really? And... um, lower levels of achievement. So you're right. We, you know, we hear this word perfectionism, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people out there perhaps wear the term perfectionist as a badge of honour. Yes, I think so. Mm. You know, we kind of associate it with doing well and having high standards. We think, well, that, that's all good things. But what we know is that actually there is a healthy level of perfectionism. I think a, a, a small dose of perfectionism mm. is usually good for people. And that's things like ah oh, striving to do well and
0: motivation and yeah.
1: motivation putting in your best effort mm. some people say oh, it makes me really neat and tidy and organized yeah. so we wouldn't want to get rid of those things in someone but if that striving gets too strong or if my sense of self-worth is defined completely by my achievements rather than kind of who I am on the mm. inside then it can actually start to get in the way of our achievement and well-being so taking too long on tasks
0: yes i have heard that from other parents that have a child suffering from this that yeah. you know, instead of doing three drafts they'll do 25 drafts and it's never good enough
1: and it's never good enough yeah. and we, we we stay up too late we mm. should have gotten to bed or we should be out seeing our friends or playing sport and you can see very quickly how that kind of sense of a a balanced well-being gets out of whack yes um and this is an interesting thing because we need to teach people that yeah there's a healthy zone of perfectionism but that it is a broad risk factor for psychological Mm. problems. And you think about high-achieving schools, you think about sports teams, um, uh, high-pressure corporate environments, they can tacitly reward or foster perfectionism. And so it's a big thing that we target because if we get the sweet spot right, that focus on effort rather than outcome, um, and we don't get this overriding self-criticism or procrastination and avoidance, then actually we can find that that point at which it's kind of our optimal striving, our, our optimal performance. And that's really yeah. what Healthy Minds is about. It's about being well, but also doing well. And those things actually go hand in hand.
0: The other thing that that I'm very interested in personally and have mentioned on some other podcasts I've done is self-compassion. So why do you think that people are so hard on themselves.
1: It can be part of a perfectionism. It can be part of a a striving. Some people are of the view that if they weren't really tough on themselves, that they would be lazy or they wouldn't Mm -hmm. meet these standards that they have for themselves. But again, it comes to that point of balance because I think uh, if you were a coach and you were trying to get the best performance out of somebody, you wouldn't be relentlessly critical. Um, you wouldn't only point out those little things that they've done wrong. No, of course not. You'd give them constructive feedback, Mm. wouldn't you? you give them constructive Mm. criticism, but also some encouragement and forgiveness and all of those kinds of things. And that's really at the heart of self-compassion because self-compassion... Is sometimes confused for self-esteem, and they're very, very different. I
0: see. Mm. We've
1: heard a lot about self-esteem yes. over the years, haven't we? Well, that's
0: been the, the buzzword for a long time, hasn't it? In schools and yeah, schools and parenting. Yeah,
1: this idea, the, you know, the assumption was, oh well, self-esteem is about feeling good about yourself. So why don't we just give people really good feedback? We'll give them a lot of praise. We'll tell them how great they are, <laughs>
0: even if they're
1: not. <laughs> yeah, even if they're not. And you know, surely if we can convince people to feel good about themselves, then they won't get depressed. Or anxious, and it didn't really work.
0: No, there was definitely a good intention behind absolutely. it, absolutely for sure. But yeah, it didn't. It, it was. It's more complex, nuance than that, isn't it, it? It is. I think it was
1: fair enough that people went down that path. Mm. Um, we just ultimately have to step back and say well, it wasn't really the answer people hoped. But I think self compassion is the answer that we people are, were looking for with mm-hmm. self esteem. Self compassion isn't about how favourably do I evaluate myself. It's about how do I treat myself.
0: Mm, it's about being kind to yourself, isn't it? The way you would be kind to other people.
1: Precisely. Mm. And and this is, the, I think, the key distinction is for of those people out there who are highly self-critical, often the way they judge themselves or criticise themselves doesn't in any way reflect how they treat the people around them. Mm. And um, that's one of the real cornerstones of building self-compassion is If someone you really cared about made the mistake you made or was having this bad day, what are the things that you would actually say to them or do that helps them? And that's really how we activate self-compassion in ourselves.
0: So we have to, again, you need to bring this to the awareness of the students and make them understand. The One thing that I know a lot of parents will be interested to hear about is... um, Social media, because I think that's probably tied in with self-esteem and all those things. And a lot of my contemporaries and I grew up without it. So when it comes to dealing with social media, sometimes I feel a bit like I'm floundering, like I'm not quite sure what to do. But on the other hand, I think uh, it is a part of the children's lives these days. And so it, banning it or not allowing them access to it, I don't actually think is the answer. What's a healthy way to approach it uh, with children, do you think?
1: The most important thing for kids is to be critical consumers of the media. Um, We know that, um, you know, kids who are at school today, they're really growing up in the most image-focused time Mm. there has ever been. There's never been more access to to media than now. Um, That's both formal media, traditional streams like TV, Um, but also now the internet and then devices, social media, um, apps um, like Instagram and others. And so you're right, it's not going away. Um, Probably the most powerful thing we can do is to teach kids critical thinking Mm -hmm. for what they're exposed to. And there's really two key questions that would make someone a a good critical thinker of, of social media. One would be to ask what is it that has probably been altered about this image or is not realistic about it? And the second question is, how are they trying to influence me? Mm. Because both of those questions cause us to step back and immediately consider, all the sneaky ways in which images are constructed or portrayed in an unrealistic manner, or just the little things that we know advertisers and um, influencers do Mm -hmm. to give us uh, a particular image of something. And ultimately, they are trying to influence us, either to like their post, follow them, Buy a product, mm. and so you know if we're not going to be subconsciously um, drifting around in this sea of other people's intentions for us, then we've got to be aware of the sneaky strategies they're using.
0: So just yeah, look at things with a critical eye, and that's something that's one of the units you teach, isn't it, in the Healthy Minds program? It is. Yeah. In in terms of the Healthy Minds program, how did you how did you start it, and how did you get it rolled out into schools?
1: It started with my uh, research at Flinders University, um, and my PhD was uh, not always an intention that I had when I was doing my training to be a psychologist. It was really born out of my experience as a therapist, Mm -hmm. because I realised that there were a bunch of things for people to know that meant they could improve and manage their own mental health really well. But they, almost without exception, they were not aware of these skills and concepts when they arrived. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, what about all those people out there in the world who will never come and sit on my couch Mm. and have a therapy session with me or any psychologist? So where would they learn these skills? And I I became a little bit disillusioned by the mental health system, which is, I mean, there's many, many good things about Mm. what we can do for people's mental health, but you know, we have this system that seems to wait until people are stuck or struggling before we teach them the skills of how to have a healthy mind and that didn't sit well with me. So it became this kind of mission to um, get those skills and knowledge out to as many people as we can and not, not sort of pop psychology or assumptions that are out there about mental health. There's a lot of... Good intentions and motherhood statements, and just think positive, and all these kinds of things that ultimately actually aren't that helpful. It's a bit simplistic, too. I mean, what does that
0: actually mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Mm. that was really where it all came about. And um, having seen um, some occurrence of mental ill health in my own family was also a motivator to realise that um, you know when you see the effects of mental ill health firsthand. It's, you know, it was a powerful thing for me to think that maybe I could prevent some of that suffering. Yeah. And that that was really the decision.
0: I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think there's a quote by Nelson Mandela. It's something like, it always seems impossible until it is done. And thinking now, preventative mental health seems, in a way, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Like, you know, eating well and exercising, but... It wasn't, as you say, it wasn't general knowledge in the public. People didn't know how to look after them, and a lot of people still don't.
1: Absolutely. And even amongst um, very well-trained, informed people who have uh, engaged in scientific evaluations of programs designed to prevent problems, many of those haven't worked either. So while psychology has gotten very good at treating psychological Mm. disorders our track record for prevention has not been very good. And so, in fact, the approach that we took with Healthy Minds was to say, well, let's not think about preventing problems with the same hat on that we use to think about treatment. Because I think this is where the programs that didn't work um, kind of went wrong. Is that they would think about what are the symptoms of a psychological disorder and how can we kind of... Treat it in advance is kind of the way I think they were thinking about it. And we took a different approach. We said, well, what are the broad skills associated with thinking and behaviour and emotions Mm. and thinking about the world around us that are broadly protective, that help people um, regulate their emotional lives well?
0: You sort of flipped it on its head,
1: didn't you? We did. Mm. We did. And we we didn't really talk about psychological disorders at all. No. It's about the skills.
0: Yeah. Building the skills like anything, like... Training for a running race, you go running. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. And then finally, let's just talk a little bit about your book, uh, "Apples for the Mind." I absolutely loved this book. I have to say, Tom, it was. I love the way set out. Um, there are twenty chapters, and each chapter do. I guess it's like an eating an apple for your mind. Isn't it? <laughs> each chapter, it um, either explains something about mental well being or and or it gives you some exercises to do as well so it's very practical and it's to me it was the perfect length because it gives you enough information but it doesn't you know it's not bogged down in all the scientific research to sort of you know back up everything you say because you've done the research you know it so you're just presenting what we need to know as a consumer Um, so what prompted you to write the book
1: the book came about because I realised that there would be some people I uh, who, who needed or would benefit from this knowledge, but mm. would probably never end up in one of my workshops or, or in a, a, the school a school who has the Healthy Minds program. And so I thought, how can I get out to all of those other people if they're looking for something? And being frustrated, I think, at some of the pop psychology out there yeah. as well. If you, I think, if you walk down into your local uh, bookstore, there's not many of those anymore, but if you walked into a yeah. bookstore or a library and you looked at the sort of self-help section...
0: That's massive.
1: It, it's massive. It's <laughs> massive. And, and I think, again, there's a lot of good intentions. But if you looked at a lot of those books, you'd probably end up with the impression that if you're not feeling happy, there's something wrong with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to dispel that myth and um, just, just get these ideas out through another channel. And... Um, It's been so exciting to to see the impact. The book's only been out since April, but... Um, I saw had a message come up on my phone from a reader, I think in um, I think it was in French part of Canada, um, who'd who'd written a review saying this was such a helpful book oh, to fantastic. read, and um, some some people in America saying wow this this was so practical and it's so useful, and oh that's that's what gives me a buzz. I've got yeah. to say, Amanda, this idea that there could be someone having a conversation over their kitchen table on the other side of the yeah, world,
0: yeah, it's amazing, talking
1: about these skills that are gonna gonna help them, and and that that's really why I did it.
0: Oh, well done. Well, you might have to get it translated, Tom, so it can reach (laughs) a... a a wider audience and in speaking of the audience who who is the target audience for
1: this book the target audience is really for um anybody who has an interest in Mm self-development um you know and if if we narrow down the target audience we could say well it's likely to be a you know a professional person in their 30s or 40s uh, but um really it's for anybody of any age who um has an awareness that they want to improve themselves and they want to learn some of these skills
0: i also think it's for uh it's a good one for parents to read as well so they can apply some of this knowledge to their family and their children?
1: I, I, th- I think that's that's really a good point because I think of these skills as universal skills. They apply yeah. to everyone and, you know, it's funny when we go and do our corporate workshops, people say, oh, I wish my family could hear this. And um, when we talk to people in schools, they often say, oh, I wish my husband or wife in their workplace would benefit from this. And so for the reader who can really I guess uh, integrate these skills into their life and then model them or coach yeah. them to their kids, it's really going to give them a head start.
0: Mm. And how long, I guess it took your whole life to write this book because you've done all the career, the study and everything, but how long did it take you to put pen to paper and get was, it published? Oh,
1: good question. Uh, I think I started writing and probably under a different book name, different mm. title, probably four or five years ago. Um, I remember it was January and I got out my laptop and I was full of inspiration. But the book itself came to light over many fits and starts. And, in fact, um, my editor, Alita Wintenheimer, who's actually based in Minnesota, she and I would get on these Skype calls and she'd, oh, wow. she'd um, kind of challenge and review and rebut <laughs> my, my writing and after one of the first drafts of uh, the first manuscript, we, we got on this call and, uh, you know, I, I ended up thinking, gee, there's, there's a lot of things I've got to, got to work on to improve this and really create the book I want. And at the end of that call, I, I finally sort of threaded two and two together and Alita was tough but polite mm-hmm. and I eventually said, look, one option is I could start again. And when she nodded, I thought, okay, <laughs> now I know where we're at. Yeah, okay. So I, I started again and then the second version mm. of the book came together and then that went through a couple of edits. Um, and so there were some very intense periods, particularly in the last year.
0: Yeah,
1: I b- because I started talking about the book too much and people started saying, where's your book? Where
0: is it? <laughs> yeah. So
1: I, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to pull my finger out and get this, um, get this thing done.
0: So um, I will put links up to the book in the show notes. I think you can buy it through Tom's website. That's right, isn't it? That'll link to online retailers. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put a, a review on my website as well. So that can also be bought there. And so, Tom,
1: what's the best way for people to connect with you or the Healthy Minds Program in general? Yeah, there's a few different options. My website is um or they might like to go to healthymindsprogram.com. Mm-hmm. We've got lots of articles and information yeah. on, on that website. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter as well.
0: Okay. And my final question that I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be?
1: two things straight off the bat one would be to look at the well-being wheel image on our which is on our website yeah. healthymindsprogram.com to look at that image and to give yourself a number out of 10 just a subjective assessment mm-hmm. on those six factors we talked about Um, because then you're going to be aware of your state of well-being. It doesn't have to be scientifically perfect, but you will get a sense of where am I at? And the second thing is to ask yourself, what are three things I could do to improve that? And the answer is going to be different for everyone. But that would be my recommendation, because then it becomes about us managing it and creating it for ourselves.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a really good recommendation. So that gives people some work to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for coming on the show, Tom.
1: My pleasure, Amanda. Thanks. For having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: And that was Dr. Tom Nemi, clinical psychologist and author of Apples for the Mind. You can subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed And I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. We put in a lot of time, money and effort behind the scenes. If you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing podcast and would like to make a contribution via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon to help ensure we continue to provide excellent content, please visit the Contribute page of my website. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.